Well, good morning. It's great to see you all here this morning. If you are visiting, my name is Dave. I'm the lead pastor here, and we're thrilled that you've come to check out Connect Church. I hope you'll come again and again. Uh, for those who do know me, a little story. So um, I moved to America in 1994. I know, that was like 100 years ago. Uh, but 1994, I moved here uh, from England. It was meant to be just temporary at first, but then it got a little bit longer, a little bit longer, and then I, uh, I, I married Casey, and the green card was established, so I'm able to stay now. So that worked out really well. But uh, before I met Casey, before I married her, I lived with a family here in Washington because I was helping with a church here in Washington. Uh, their names were Milo and Sherry. They were a fantastic couple. I love this couple. And I actually, um, I think they were kind of surprised as well because they were looking in the church for someone that would host this Englishman for a few months and a few months turned into a few years. And, and I lived with them for about three years when I first moved to America. And they were just a brilliant couple, Milo and Sherry. Uh, sadly, recently Milo passed away, but we still get to see Sherry a lot, my family and I, and catch up with her. But um, I had a friend from England who came and visited. And uh, he was... Was, he was visiting the States, but he was coming through this area. So he said, hey, I'm pretty close to where you live. Could I come and see you, maybe spend the night at your house? So I checked Milo and Sherry. They said, yeah, that's fine. We've got a guest room he can stay in. So, so Colin was his name. And uh, Colin came and visited. We hung out. And that night, he got to meet Milo and Sherry and hung out with them. And uh, we just had a great time together. He went to bed. And the next morning, he had to leave uh, pretty early to get on to where he was going to next. So we were uh, saying our goodbyes. And we were by the front door. And it was Colin and I and Sherry. And uh, we were ready to leave, and, and Colin's saying goodbye, and uh, Sherry said to Colin, oh, wait, you can't leave, because Milo's going to want to say goodbye. He's like, oh, okay. So she's like, Milo, Milo, Colin's leaving. Milo, come here. So Colin's just kind of stood there, and then um, the cat ran down the stairs and into the living room, and Sherry's like, Milo, and Colin's like, um, I think he just ran into the living room. <laughs> <laughs> I realized what's going on. I was like, Colin, that's the cat. Milo is the dad. Milo is Sherry's husband. He's like, oh, oh. <laughs> now, my favorite part of that story is that Colin obviously is thinking, this lady's kind of crazy. I just want to go, but she wants the cat. So say, come and say goodbye to Colin. He wants to see you before you leave. <laughs> so still, I'm still friends with Colin. In fact, we're actually going to tell you about him here in the next few weeks or months because he still lives here. He's planting a church in Boston, and uh, we want to partner with him and help him plant that church. But whenever I see Colin, we just retell that story, and we laugh again <laughs> at the thought that he thought this lady was like insistent that he couldn't leave until the cat had said goodbye. <laughs> He's like, hey, maybe in America they're just like really serious about their cats. I don't know. But here's the crazy thing. That was over 20 years ago. So at that time, I was working with a church. I got to speak at that church sometimes. I have a really hard time remembering the sermons that were taught at that church 20 years ago. In fact, I spoke at that church a few times. I've got a hard time remembering some of those sermons that I taught at that church. But I remember that story like it was yesterday. And I've told that story time and time again. And that's the genius of Jesus. The genius of Jesus is that he understood the power of a story. He understood that sometimes we can, we can forget the facts and the figures and the details, but man, when we hear a good story, it's very easy to tell that story again and again and again. And that's exactly what's happened with these parables that Jesus has taught. They were stories that we remember and we tell again and again and again. In fact, this morning... We're going to go to Luke, and uh, we're going to look at another parable, a couple of parables this morning, um, through the, the context of Luke as he's shared them. 
And here's the great thing about Luke. Luke was one of four people who wrote an account of the life of Jesus. And listen to what Luke says in the very beginning of the letter he wrote. Luke chapter 1, verse 1. He says this, Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They use the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write an accurate account for you, most honorable Theophilus. This is who Luke's writing to. So you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. Now, historians and archaeologists and biblical scholars, they believe that Luke probably wrote this letter sometime around the end of the first century A.D., so around 90, 100 A.D. So he put pen to paper. He wrote this down about 70 years after the death of Jesus. Now, we know that he didn't just write down willingly, that he very carefully, as he said here, um, he used eyewitness reports and he, he, he talked to different people and very carefully investigated everything from the beginning. But some of what Luke wrote, the parables, these stories, would be stories that Luke probably heard told because people were telling these stories again and again and again. And parents would tell their children and grandparents would tell their grandchildren. Because that was the genius of Jesus, was that these stories were very easy to be told. These stories were very easy to be handed on down. And yet they weren't just stories. Because hidden in these stories were these incredible truths about Father God. These amazing insights and truths about who we are and how God sees us. These were the stories that Jesus told so this Sunday, we're going to wrap up our series by looking at what I call the lost parables. The lost parables. Now, these aren't parables that we've just discovered, okay? These are parables that are about something that was lost. And here's why I want to look at these this morning. Here's why I'm excited that we're looking at them this morning. Because I feel like for the, um, the context of us here at Connect, these parables, these stories that Jesus told are right at the very heart of who we are. I'm excited to tell these stories this morning because I feel like this is exactly who Connect was when we first started as a church and who we still are today. So buckle your seatbelts. We are going to jump right in. So Luke chapter 15 verse 1 starts out like this. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people even eating with them. Now, here's the crazy thing. Before we even get into these three stories, before we even start to talk about these three stories that Jesus talks about, these lost parables, this one opening statement, there is such a lot to take in here. When I was preparing this message, I found myself thinking, man, I could speak all morning just on this sentence. Because Luke wants to set the scene. Luke wants you to understand what's going on here. These are three great stories, but you need to understand the context in which these stories are being told. Because there was a group of people from very opposite sides of the track. Very diversely different people. There were some Pharisees and some religious leaders who were listening to this. But there were also some of the outcasts of society. There were some tax collectors. Uh, Luke kind of sums up just about everything by saying they were notorious sinners. And here's the thing. The religious leaders, the Pharisees, they wouldn't have taken an issue with Jesus teaching these kinds of people. They would have been okay with that because that's what they did. 
they taught these people. And when I say taught these people, basically they told these people how bad they were and how good they were, the Pharisees. You see, the whole Jewish culture was made up of this kind of shame, honor driven society where you were either a very honorable member of society or you were a very shameful member of society. And the people in the honorable positions, they took great pleasure in making sure that those in the shameful positions knew who they were, looking down their noses on them, saying, look at me and look at you. You see, they wouldn't have cared that Jesus was teaching these people. They were quite happy to teach them as well. What bothered them was that it was more than just teaching. Jesus seemed to like hanging out with them that he would eat with them. This really got under their skin. It annoyed them, it frustrated them, that these people appeared to enjoy hanging around with Jesus, that they liked him. They were used to the religious leaders not being liked by these people, and that kind of puffed them up even more because that's good that they don't like us because they're bad and we're good. And yet they did like Jesus You know, back in 2013, we planted Connect Church. If you're fairly new here, you may not know our whole story, but we started this church from scratch about four years ago. And it was always our desire as we were getting ready to have our very first service. And I met with several pastors here in town and shared this with them because it was really a a big part of my heart. I said, listen, my desire is that if we're a year old as a church at Connect, and we have 200 people who are coming every Sunday, I will be disappointed if we have 200 people, but there are four churches here in Washington that have 50 less people each. If that's what happens, we've missed our goal. We're not starting a church here in Washington to draw some people from some other churches into this church. Our goal from the very beginning was to reach people who didn't have a church home of their own. The reason to start, the reason to plant Connect Church, because we knew that there were people that lived in this area and surrounding areas who maybe they grew up going to church, but for some reason had just stopped going. To reach people who maybe had no church background whatsoever. But our desire from the very beginning was to reach people who didn't yet have a relationship with Jesus. And that hasn't changed. Four years on, that is still our burning passion, our burning desire, our driving force. And we've had people who have come from other churches, and we understand that, and we're okay with that because they come and they, they bring some, some maturity in their faith, and they, they, they serve, and there's some great um, benefits to having that. But we want to be a church that exists for those who don't yet know Jesus. So we realized that if we're going to be that church, we're going to have to create a certain kind of culture here for that to work. So from day one and still today, we've created this culture that what I call uh, belong, believe, behave. That's the culture we're striving to create here at Connect, belong, believe, behave. So here's what I mean by that, okay? So if someone is going to come along to Connect for the very first time, and especially if that person um, didn't grow up in church or doesn't feel themselves maybe that they are like a follower of Jesus, I don't want them to come in on a Sunday morning and feel like, oh, I don't really fit here. All these people, they seem to have their acts together. They're all very good Christian people. I'm, I'm not like that, so, so I don't feel like I belong. So we've tried to create a culture where anyone from any walk of life any situation, any background, any struggles, whatever they may be going through. Maybe if they were being written about by Luke, they might even be called notorious sinners. We want 
everyone to feel like they belong. So we work really hard at that. If you're here for the very first time this morning, I hope you felt welcomed when you arrived here this morning because number one, our goal is to create an environment in which you feel like you belong. Because if you feel like you belong, there's a very strong chance you'll come a second time and a third time and a fourth time. And maybe that person that invited you, you'll be more open to listening to what it is uh, about their life and about Jesus in their life that drew them to Jesus. Maybe you'll be more open to having conversations about spiritual things. And maybe there'll come a time that because you felt like you belonged, you'll realize, wow, I believe that what they're talking about is true. I believe when they say that Jesus loves me, he actually loves me. I believe when they say Jesus has a plan for my life, he really does have a plan for my life. In fact, I'm actually going to make a decision here to believe. I'm going to cross the line, and I'm going to make a decision to believe. You know, I think it's a lot easier to make that decision in an environment where you feel welcomed, where you feel like you belong. That's what used to upset the Pharisees, because these people felt like Jesus welcomed them, even though they themselves probably knew that they were far from uh, living good lives. They were, they, maybe their lives were a mess, but there was just something about Jesus that accepted them for who they are and where they were. And here's the great thing we've seen happen in the last four years here at Connect. We've seen people feel like they belong. We've seen people make a decision to believe. And you may have heard some of their stories as they've got baptized here. What starts to happen after that is God starts to work in their hearts. And some things start to change in their behavior. They start to realize things like, you know, God talks about forgiving uh, those who have hurt us. There's some people who have held on to some bitterness for a long time, but as a result of their belief in Jesus, they've started to behave differently, to forgive. Maybe there have been some habits or some addictions that as a result of their belief, their behavior has started to change. And slowly, slowly, we start to see God at work in people's lives and their lives start to change. People being set free, people being, uh, discovering more about God's wonderful plan for their lives. It's a wonderful thing to watch. It can be challenging at times because you can create kind of a messy environment because if you're going to say, hey, you all belong, then, then you could have a very large spectrum of different people here. But the truth is, I believe that God is at work and belief and behavior comes. Now, here's why we've worked really hard to create this culture. Because I feel that the church as a whole has got this wrong from time to time. I actually think that the church has kind of got caught up in uh, the opposite of this. I think the church has, has been guilty in the past of doing this. They've created this, um, this culture of behave, believe, belong. So what, what they've kind of said is, okay, so if you want to come here, if you want to come in, so we, we better work on this behavior first. First things first, let's fix some of that behavior. You're not going to be able to dress like that. You're not going to be able to say that word. You're not going to be able to do that. You're not going to be able to, you know, behavior was the very first thing that was addressed. And then hopefully, when things got cleaned up a little bit, then you might come to that point of believing. And if we see that you've behaved differently and you're believing in Jesus, then you can belong. That's what's happening here with the Pharisees. And Jesus is turning it upside down. They were drilling behavioral patterns. They were you know, telling people, you were wrong for what you do. 
And the sad thing is, you think 2,000 years later, we'd have figured this out. But in actual fact, I think it's why, sadly, as followers of Jesus today, we are still known more for what we are against than what we're for. And we can still make the same mistake that those Pharisees made. So as we look at these parables this morning, I think we're going to be challenged a little bit as well. We're going to be challenged in our thinking. There's a book I read by the name of uh, an author, Carl Medeiros. It's called Speaking of Jesus. So Carl Medeiros was a missionary to Beirut for many years. So you can imagine the kind of challenge that was being a Christian in the Middle East in a very Muslim, heavy environment where he's trying to talk to people about Christianity. And he, he talks in the book how no one wants to talk to this white American about Christianity because they all had this huge wall that had been built between Islam and Christianity, and it came with it so many other things. So anytime he talked about the church or Christianity, um, he just faced opposition. So he discovered after a while that when he started talking to people about Jesus, the conversation was wide open. They didn't really want to hear about Christianity, but they loved talking about Jesus. And in the book, Speaking of Jesus, he tells these stories of amazing encounters he's had with these Muslim uh, regular people, leaders, government leaders, military leaders, who were wide open to talking to him because they loved hearing about Jesus. So towards the end of the book, he talks about coming back to Colorado Springs and working with the church and realizing pretty soon after getting back that the same applied in America. As he would speak to his neighbors and his friends who weren't attending church about church or Christianity, the walls went up. But when he talked about Jesus, they, oh, I like Jesus. I'm not so keen on Christianity, but I love Jesus. So that's where he would start. He would start talking to people about Jesus. So let's read uh, a little portion of this book here. He talks about um, a friendship that developed between him and a guy by the name of Richard Scorman. So Richard Scorman, he lived in Colorado Springs, and uh, he describes himself like this. This is Richard Scorman describing himself. I'm a small business owner, a former city councilman. I was the vice mayor of Colorado Springs. I'm a gay rights activist. I was the outspoken voice against Colorado's Amendment 2 in the early 90s, an environmentalist activist, socially liberal, but fiscally fairly conservative. I've served on the board of the National Gay and Lesbian Foundation run by Tim Gill. I was their token straight person, as I am happily married right now to Patricia and have no kids. So this is this friendship that the author of this book has established with this man. But let me take you back to how we first met him for the very first time. You see, this guy, Richard, he owned a coffee bar in Colorado Springs. The name of the coffee bar was Paul Richards. And uh, the author of the book, Carl Medeiros, he decided to start attending this coffee bar to do some studying. He says, during that time, I began studying and preparing my weekly sermons at Paul Richards, the little coffee shop, restaurant, used bookstore downtown. I had heard it was the toughest place in town, where all the gays, Wiccans, and generally odd people hung out. So I thought, perfect. Sounds like a place Jesus would be, so I'll go study there. One day I struck up a conversation with Ed, the bookstore manager. I was buying a couple of old Philip Yancey books. These were Christian-type books that were always really cheap there. As Ed looked at my books and then looked at me, we had not talked before, I asked, so what do you think about Christians? It was hilarious. I'll never forget the look on his face as he tried to be nice to his customer in front of him. Uh, yeah, good, uh, no problem, he muttered, looking a bit sheepish. 
I pressed him, come on, tell me the truth. Well, there was that one time they threw that brick through our window. And when they talk bad about us on the radio, and when they preach against us outside, and he said it was like a dam broke when he knew I really wanted to hear. When he paused, I said, where do you think Jesus would be if he were here in Colorado Springs right now? Uh, Focus on the family, he replied with a question in tone, obviously unsure that he was even qualified to answer such a question. I slapped the countertop he was standing behind and made a ding sound and said, nope, wrong answer. You know where Jesus would be, Ed? Right here at Poor Richard's. And I'm trying to follow him, so I tried to come here where he'd be. I went on to ask if he'd ever noticed me reading the Bible in the corner. And he said he had, and he was surprised, but he didn't want to ask about it. I told him I prepared my talks there every week for the church I preached in on Sundays. He was so confused. Then I asked him my favorite question. I said, Ed, if Jesus came into this room right now, I mean physically, was here, who do you think he'd prefer to, prefer to go hang out with, me or you? Like everyone else, he got the answer wrong. He said it would be me. I hit the counter again and made the negative bell sound again. And I said, Ed, you're not doing very well. You're zero for two. Jesus would for sure go home with you. You need to read the book, bro. What book? The Bible. The book about Jesus. It's all in there. He was always making religious people angry. The ones who thought they owned him and all the truth because he kept hanging out with people they thought were inappropriate. The sinners, lepers, prostitutes, Samaritans, Ed, he would choose you. I felt so moved as I saw his response to this shocking assertion that I walked around the counter and I put my hand on Ed's shoulder. I said, Ed, Jesus is for you. He's not against you. He actually likes you. It's my type, the religious ones who need to be careful, lest we find ourselves on the very opposite side of Jesus. He nearly began to cry. He then asked me if I was a Christian because he'd never heard a Christian say anything like this before. I explained that being a Christian wasn't the point, but that I was actually trying to follow Jesus. He then asked me if I knew Richards, the owner of the place. I hadn't even heard of him, so we went upstairs to Richard's office to meet him, but he was out. Ed explained our whole exchange to the secretary and the bookkeeper. They were both shocked and said, Richard will want to hear this for sure. And that's how the beginning of this friendship between Carl and Richard began. You know, the truth is, I think sometimes we find ourselves maybe drawn more towards the response of the Pharisees than the response of Jesus. Which is why as we look at these three lost parables here this morning, we may be challenged. We may relate more to those that are found than those that are lost. So as we start to hear what Jesus said and why he told these stories, we may even be offended. If that's the case, don't blame me, blame Jesus. The first story he told, and again, he's telling this story because the Pharisees can't wrap their heads around why Jesus would want to hang out with these people, why they would want to hang out with him. So Jesus says, let me tell you a story. There was this shepherd, 
Now, at this point, okay, people are starting to chuckle because in that day and age, okay, shepherds, they were like the bottom of the totem pole. They were a really low profession. If you couldn't do anything else, you could be a shepherd. I'm sure they were like, oh, man, I can't believe you just said that. That's such a shepherd thing to say. I mean, you know, shepherds were kind of just lower class people. So here's how Jesus starts out this story. Luke 15, verse 3, he told them this story. If a man has a hundred sheep, you've got this shepherd, and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Well, people are like, well... It's obvious. They would just accept. It's lost. <laughs> You've lost one. Keep an eye on the ones you got. So, verse 4. Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? Well, now the laughter's picking up a bit. <laughs> he's not just a shepherd. He's a dumb shepherd. What shepherd in his right mind would leave 99 sheep unguarded, open to attack, in the middle of the wilderness to go and look for one? That's just ridiculous. Cut your losses. One out of a hundred is not bad. Did you know I found out this week that in the retail industry, there's a, a, a word called shrinkage. It's a phrase that in the retail industry, um, retailers are okay with. And here's what it means. Shrinkage, okay. That is the amount of stock and expect to lose in a year through theft, employee theft, damaged goods, cashier errors, etc. That's what shrinkage is. The national norm across the retail industry is about 1.4%. So whether it's a store up on the square or Walmart, they, they kind of expect that about 1% of my income each year will be lost through theft, employee theft, mistakes, this kind of thing. Well, that doesn't sound like much, but Walmart, whose U.S. sales are $300 billion, that shrinkage number would be $4.2 billion a year they're losing. I don't know about you, but I think it's a lot of money. So I found this article in Forbes magazine that explains that even though Walmart is losing $4.2 billion a year, and even though they're working hard to make sure that that number doesn't rise and they're putting all sorts of practices in place as far as security and measures and checks, they've accepted that it would actually cost them more than $4.2 billion to get that down to zero. So they just accept, you know what? 1.4%. That's about what we're going to lose. So they accept that they're going to lose that much money a year because they got 99%. We're going to lose one. That's common sense. The people listening are thinking, what a dumb shepherd. <laughs> Who in their right minds goes off looking for one and leaving the other 99 in danger? It just doesn't make sense. Verse 5, and when he found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders when he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me because I found my lost sheep. You know, I think at that moment, the penny may have started to drop with some of the people listening, especially those notorious sinners. When they realized that is a dumb story. That shepherd's an idiot. That's crazy. But I think Jesus is saying, that's how crazy God is about me. That's how much it doesn't make sense that God loves me. I think the religious leaders who are part of the found were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. So you're saying that even though we're all here, you're still going to go after one that was lost? And Jesus goes on to emphasize the point even more as he tells a second story. Suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? 
You see, in Jewish culture, um, a Jewish girl, when she got married, she would begin to wear a headband of 10 silver coins, and this would signify that she's now a wife. It was almost like a, a Jewish version of the wedding ring that we wear today. So when he's saying she lost one coin, he's not talking about one coin. He's talking about losing part of her identity, who she is. So, so if she lost one of those 10 coins, she would be frantically trying to find it. It would be like losing your wedding ring. Where is my wedding ring? I've got to find it. Have you ever lost your car keys when you were late for an appointment and you just are frantically searching for them? Maybe you're scheduled to go on an important trip overseas and you open your drawer and the passport that's normally in that drawer isn't in the drawer. And you panic, don't you? You turn the house upside down looking for that passport. There is no worse feeling in the world. That's actually not true. There is one worse feeling. That's when you open the drawer, the passport is there, and you discover that it expired two months ago. Trust me, that is an awful feeling. Yeah, <laughs> been there. But not only is Jesus using the shepherd story to illustrate the craziness that God would, would love the one, even though he has the 99, he's saying, listen, it's not even that he goes looking. Let me describe how passionate he is when he goes looking. He tells this story about this widow looking for the coin, and frantically she is searching. Jesus is saying it's that kind of passion when he goes searching for you. And in verse 9, when she finds it, she will call in her friends and neighbors and say, Rejoice with me, because I found my lost coin. There's a third story he tells about a son that was lost. We call it the prodigal son sometimes. Two weeks ago, Justin shared this story. And if you weren't here, it was brilliant what he shared. You should check him out on the app or the, the website and listen to it because he did a great job of, of illustrating what Jesus was talking about, about how passionate God is about going after that which was lost. And these three stories, they kind of build upon each other. There's a sheep, there's a coin, and then there's a human being, a life that a father loves so dearly that when the son returns, he runs out to meet him. You know, it's easy for us to read these parables today and take their message for granted. But the people who first heard them when Jesus was telling them would have been shocked. Because Jesus was saying that God actually searches for lost sinners. It's no wonder the scribes and the Pharisees were offended, for there was no place in their legalistic theology for a God like that. A God that cares about the one. A God that will search passionately for those that are lost. And when the shepherd found the lost sheep, there is nothing of a reluctant shepherd scolding the sheep, but instead relief and elation that the sheep has been found. Those religious leaders, they were frustrated that Jesus is hanging out with notorious sinners. So he uses these three stories to illustrate why it's his mission to seek and save those that are lost, to challenge them in their thinking. So this morning, 2,000 years later, I think we need to get real just for a second here. And having heard the stories that Jesus told, we have to ask this question of ourselves. Do I have the heart of Jesus? Do I have the heart of Jesus? What am I doing to reach those that are lost? Am I praying for my friends? Am I talking to them about my faith in Jesus? Am I inviting them to join me at church? 
Next Sunday, we've got a fun Father's Day service planned. We'll be outside. We'll be cooking burgers, hot dogs. There'll be some games. There'll be all sorts going on. We'll have a shorter service at 10 o'clock and then just hanging out and eating together. Maybe that friend of yours, that neighbor who you know would be a real stretch for them to come to church for the first time, maybe that would be a little bit easier. Maybe that's something you can invite them to. But the horror of the situation in Jesus' day was that these religious leaders, they had nothing in common with the people Jesus was hanging out with. In fact, they looked down their noses at him. So let me challenge you with this thought this morning. It's all well and good asking if you'd talk to your friends about Jesus, but what about those people maybe whose lifestyle you don't approve of, whose behavior you disapprove of, whose beliefs don't match yours? Are you helping them find their way into a relationship with Jesus? Or are your comments and Facebook posts, is your behavior actually driving them further away? Because I have to be honest with you here this morning. Here at Connect, we do care about the 99. We have small groups and serving opportunities and, and places where people who find themselves to be followers of Jesus can get connected, can get plugged in, can grow in their faith. But you know who we care about the most? The one that is still lost. We love the 99, but we care passionately about the one that is still lost because that's who God cares about the most. And we will never apologize for putting more resources into reaching that one that is lost than looking after the 99 that are okay. And let me close out by telling you why this morning. There's one verse that I left out of every one of those stories that I told. I'm going to read the three of them now. In the lost sheep, it was verse 7. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. The lost coin, verse 10. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. When it came to the lost son, do you remember? It says that the father killed the fatted calf and threw a huge party to celebrate the return of the son. What Jesus is saying here is every time something that was lost was found, there was a celebration in heaven. A celebration took place in heaven. The angels rejoiced over the one that was found and returned. When Jesus tells a story about this shepherd and this lost sheep, we don't hear it from the perspective of the sheep. We're going to go live now to the sheep that's been found and interview the sheep. How are you feeling? You're feeling relieved? You're feeling good to be back home? It's, it's got to be a big relief now to be back with the other sheep. No, that when the sheep is found, what we hear about is what goes on in heaven. That there's a celebration that takes place. Here at Connect, I want to be a part of doing something that causes parties in heaven. I want to create a culture and environment. I want to challenge every one of us to be reaching out to those that are lost. Because when the lost are found Heaven rejoices. A party takes place. And I want to be a part of causing as many parties as possible. We can't do it without you. So let me close by asking this question. Who are you searching for today? Let's pray. Jesus, I know that when you told these stories, Lord, they were to challenge and inspire situations that were happening that you were in the middle of. There were religious leaders who were looking down their noses and judging those that were far from you, and you just blew them away when you actually came and befriended them. When it says that they liked hanging out with you, that you ate with them, it broke down every norm of the day. 
But it showed, Lord, that lost people matter to you. That you care for the 99, but you will still go after the one. So I pray, Lord, that our heart will be your heart. That we would capture some of that passion, Lord, to go after the lost. That we wouldn't be content being a part of the 99, but we would do whatever we can to reach those that are far from you. And help us, Lord, because sometimes that may mean having conversations with people that we don't agree on. That ideologically, that beliefs, that we may not see eye to eye. And yet, Jesus, you still see them as a lost sheep. And we may be the only Jesus they ever get to experience. So I pray, Lord, that our um, beliefs of what we're against wouldn't drive them away, but our beliefs of what we're for and who you were for would draw them to you. Help us do that, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.